Bibles, why don't you open them up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And uh, sometimes I feel like a broken record when I get up here, but I think it's important. The style in which we, um, the style in which at least I preach is um, expository. So what we, that means is we just go verse by verse through um, a book of the Bible. And so Redemption Hill started just over a year ago, the first Sunday in October. And we spent two or three weeks looking at the Great Commission and what, how that was relative to us um, as a church. And then after that, we started in John chapter 1, verse 1. We took, I think, three weeks off at Christmas time, and we took a week off at Mother's Day, a week off at Father's Day, and the rest of this journey for a year has been the Gospel of John. And we've marched from John 1, 1, all the way up into John chapter 18. When we look at the layout of the Gospel of John, the first uh, 11 chapters of the Gospel of John cover about three years, three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you get into John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a triumphal entry. Right? Jesus is marching into, into Jerusalem, and, and, and now he's marching in as a king. So you remember he's on the, the colt's back, and the crowd's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. There's this big parade for the king, Jesus. Right after this occurrence there in, in Matthew, we read about when Jesus cleanses the temple. Right? He gets there and he's, he's upset because um, what he says is that the, the, the priests have taken the, the house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. And we're touching that this morning. But, but so John chapter 12 is the triumphal entry. After that, we go into this, this um, upper room discourse. So John chapter 13 through John chapter 16 all take place one evening upstairs in a room. Okay, And Jesus meets the disciples and... John chapter 13, you have where he washes the feet of the disciples. Again, this was, this was a, a, a task for the lowest person within the home. Usually there would be a servant there that as the people got and gathered on the table, the servant would come and wash the feet. Or, or if there were no servants present, the lowest ranking person in the group would take care of that. And nobody does it. And Jesus sees it. And he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And to me, you know, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God on high. Washing dirty feet. To me, it's an amazing story, a story of humility. And so that marks the beginning of this upper room discourse. And so John 13 and 14 and 15, going into 16, is where Jesus spends some intimate moments with his disciples. And this is, this is the night that, that later that night, John chapter 17, is this prayer, right? Jesus has this prayer. The, the, we, your Bible probably calls it the, the um the high priestly prayer, and I, I've told you guys a better way to view that is the Lord's Prayer. Because John chapter 17 is one long continuous prayer between God, or between Jesus and God the Father. Um, more than likely it wasn't Jesus' longest prayer, but it's the longest recorded prayer. When he completes that prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then shortly thereafter is when Judas comes and Jesus is arrested. And so we talked about that, and then last week we looked at the first uh, 11, 12 verses of John chapter 18, and that's when Judas marches in with um, this cohort, which we, we mentioned last week, a cohort with 600 Roman soldiers. Uh, so to me, this is amazing to me. You got Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples there in this garden. It's somewhere between midnight and three in the morning. And they're praying. 
Okay, they're, they're praying, and if you guys remember the story, we didn't really cover the full story, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes, and they get to inside the gates there, and he leaves most of the disciples there, and he tells James, Peter, and John to go with him further. Those are his inner circle. They go a little further, and he tells those guys an intimate moment. He's like, guys, I, I, he's, Jesus, the Bible tells us he's agitated. He's, he's moved. And he, he tells those guys, pray with me, pray with me, pray with me. And he goes a little bit further off and begins to pray, and he comes back, and those three guys are sleeping. Right? And he he, he kind of shakes them and says, guys, wake up. I need you to pray with me. And this happens three times. Now, again, I, I warned this last week when we mentioned this. It's easy for us to stand in judgment. How in the world? They're with Jesus. How in the world could they fall asleep? It's like after midnight. Like I have a hard time staying up till like 10 o'clock. Right? When the sun goes down, I'm ready to go down too. And these, these are, these, and it's not like these guys, they've been working all day long. They've been making preparations for this feast. It's been a long, hard day. They're emotionally drained. Remember that, that whole supper, that last supper, right? Jesus tells them, guys, it's over. My hour has come. Goes on to the point, one of you guys is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. These guys, they, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. Their world's been turned upside down. They are emotionally spent. They're physically tired. It's well past midnight, more than likely, and they fall asleep. Jesus comes back three times. The third time we read in, in the Gospel of Luke that it was, Jesus was praying so intensely that his sweat had turned to blood. So amazing. And as that prayer concludes... Judas marches up with this cohort, these 600 Roman soldiers, 600 Roman trained soldiers. They got the, they got the armor on, they got their weapons, they can hear them clanking, right? And they're coming up and it's there that they arrest Jesus. And this morning we're going to pick up in John chapter 18. I'm going to read verses um, 13 through 24 in John chapter 18. And then we're going to hop over into the gospel of Mark because, um, the, the gospel, sometimes we can look at a few of them and fill in some of these details, all right? So John chapter 18, um, starting in verse 12. Let's go. And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13 says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That other disciple would have been John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known of the high, or to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl that kept watch at the door. And brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not, or you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because he was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them standing and warming himself. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. Where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. 
They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So let's march back over, flip your Bibles back a few pages to Mark, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 records what happened with Caiaphas. So Mark 14. Starting in verse 53. So Mark 14, verse 53. Gives us kind of the same story here. And, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the priests and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple and, it is, and that is made with, with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the, of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heavens. And the high priest tore his garments and asked, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And all and they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this morning, as we look at some very difficult passages, Lord, I, I don't know all that are here. And I don't know all that needs to be said to them, but you do. Father, I ask that you take this critical portion of Scripture and use it in a special way this morning. Lord, I pray for those um, that may be in this room that have never accepted you as their Lord and Savior. I, I, God, I ask, I pray, I beg. That today is the day that something that is said, but more importantly, something that we read out of your word, your holy, perfect, inerrant word, convicts them. That the light goes off and they understand it, maybe for the first time. Lord, for those maybe who have been walking the walk for quite a while but never really fully engaged, never really fully given their life to you. Maybe our, our Christian in name only. Lord, I pray that we be convicted as well. Lord, I just pray that you work in a mighty way 
Holy Spirit, right now, I, begin, I pray that you begin to pound our hearts. That we leave this morning completely different people that came. Lord, I pray that you give me your power. I pray that every word that I speak is glorifying to you. I pray that everything that I say is pure to your word. Lord, I pray that you take all my inadequacies and brush them aside. May you receive all honor and all glory. We love you. We thank you. In your son's name, amen. This is one of those difficult passages, and this marks a complete turn in the Gospel of John, where Jesus has been arrested. He's taken down, and we see a few different characters. I want us to kind of look at a few of these individuals or groups, because I believe that that we can find ourselves in, in one of those groups, one of these parties here. The first one we see, um, as Jesus is arrested, they take him to what's called their Annas, Annas's house, this, this, this man named Annas. Um, all throughout the Gospels, Annas is mentioned, and, and sometimes he's referred to as the high priest, sometimes he's just referred to as Annas. Um, we mentioned him earlier, uh, several weeks back, when we talked about um, um, the booths of the son of, of Annas. See, Annas was the former high priest. He became the high priest about A.D. 6. Quinerius, you guys remember if we go back into Luke chapter 2, Quinerius who, who caused the um, census to go into place, right? He's the same guy that appoints Annas as the high priest. Now, according to the Jewish custom, a high priest would be appointed. He was the one kind of over the whole territory. He's over the temple, all of religious affairs, and that position was kind of almost something like the, the Supreme Court. Like when you were named that position, it was you were named there for life. You know, the only time you, you left was if you died. Now, um, Israel had been conquered, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Romans. The Romans didn't like one person having so much power. So right around AD 15, they um, have Annas step down in power. Now, Annas was a very um, intelligent by world standards person. Now, every year you'd have this Passover, this time of feast, and these people would travel all over the world to come back to Israel, to back to Jerusalem, to the temple. And they would have to do these sacrifices. So all, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Okay, now Annas, one of the things they'd do is they, these, these animals that they would, they would sacrifice had to be perfect without blemish. They all had to be inspected by the priests. The high priest was over all the priests, right? And so uh, uh, initially they, they would bring their animals from wherever they were, from Egypt, Jordan, wherever it was. They would bring these animals and they would get ready for the sacrifice. The priests would overlook them. Well, Annas had a good idea. Well, why don't we make it a little bit simpler for these people? We'll offer the opportunity for them to purchase an animal right here. They don't have to drag it all the way from Egypt or wherever they're coming. That sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds noble. It's like a good thing. Well, then all of a sudden, Annas realized, I can make a little bit of money off this stuff. My priests have to inspect everything. And if they find blemish, then they can't bring their animals with them. So they have to take it from us, they have to buy it from us. And then eventually, over this course of time, it got to the point where you were not allowed to bring an animal. It had to be purchased through the bazaar or the booths of Annas. They had this whole racket going. To the point where Josephus, um, one of the 
early Jewish historians states that you could have bought, um, by us translating and taking into inflation or whatever it is we do nowadays, they could have bought a chicken or a dove, a dove for about 20 cents out in the market. But for them to go to the priests and buy it, it would cost somewhere between 10 and $15. So he was making a lot of money off this. And not only did he control the animals, like it was required, again, going back to Old Testament times, everyone who came to the temple had to give a half shekel. Okay, a half shekel to support the temple, to support the priest. Okay, a half shekel wasn't a tremendous amount of money. Except that money had to go to the money changers. They wouldn't accept currency outside of Jerusalem. It was all considered pagan money. And who do you suppose controlled the money changers? Annas. And then he had to increase the exchange rate. And so for you to get a half shekel, you were basically trading for a whole shekel or more. And so Annas had created this empire. He was making, by not even, by, by in their days, in Jesus' days, he was making millions of dollars. And so the Roman government got leery of Annas. And so they would get him out and then they would bring a new high priest in. Well, Annas was a smart man. He arranged for all five of his sons, a son-in-law and then eventually a grandson to be in service as the high priest. And so when we get to this part, we see these other guys, and Caiaphas is his son-in-law. They're almost like puppet high priest. Annas is the one still driving the car. And that's why they take Jesus to Annas first. There's also a reason. Annas is upset and mad at Jesus. We go back and we remember Matthew 26 when Jesus, after the triumphal entry, goes and cleanses the temple. Right? Why did he cleanse the temple? What was he upset about the same racket that he was doing. These, these people that were coming, that were poor, they didn't have the money. And, and the priests, the, the religious leaders, were ripping them off. And that's when Jesus goes in there and starts flipping the tables and, and, and has this rod. He's hitting things and he's going nuts. And, and, and he's saying, these people have taken this house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. That was all at the hands of Annas. Annas didn't like the idea or the thought of this rabbi, this teacher from the woods coming into town and disrupting what he'd spent so long building. So we have Annas, this leader. And then this trial, this first trial that Jesus goes through, we could, there are up to 18 different mistrial things that they do that should have thrown this completely out. And we see several of them there. But they had to have at least two witnesses that could cooperate, that would come together and have the same story. When we read in Mark, they got frustrated. Right? They're, they're trying to find all these false witnesses, but nobody can come up with the same story. The high priest was not supposed to be involved at all in the interrogation. He was supposed to be the one outside, impartial to everything. But yet when we read the story, who's leading the charge? Who's asking all the questions? Annas and then Caiaphas. And then finally, the one being accused is not supposed to bear any testimony. And Caiaphas is the one that finally nails it to Jesus and says, are you, are you claiming to be the Christ? 
the one from the blessed, or, or, or the Son of God? And Jesus says yes. Now listen, folks. Jesus could have sat there silently and said nothing. In our lingo today, he could have pled the fifth and said nothing. Instead, he says, yeah, I am. And I'll be the one sitting at the right hand. It's powerful. So we have this group that comes in out of the Sanhedrin made up of 71 Jewish religious leaders. It would have been like uh, the Supreme Court of the religious system. These would have been the, the most religious, the, the, the most well-known, the most highly educated. This is the cream of the crop of the religious people. And they put Jesus on trial. We also have two other people involved in the story. Besides Jesus, the Sanhedrin, and his high priest. We have two disciples. Peter and John. Peter. We read in this story. He comes, he follows, but he's always at a distance. He's always kind of far away. Close enough to maybe hear something, but, but not close enough to be seen or spotted. Going back to that upper room discourse, John chapter 13. After Jesus shows that Judas be the one that will betray him by dipping the bread and offering it to Judas. He later goes on and tells Peter that he will deny him three times. And remember Peter's response is, never, I will die for you. And we saw that in John um, when, when, when they come to arrest him, the beginning of John chapter 18, right? The, the guards come and they arrest him. And what does Peter do? He's the only one with a weapon amongst those 12 guys there. He pulls that sword out and chops the ear off of the high priest's emissary. And he was willing to die for Jesus. But all of a sudden things begin to drift. And Peter kind of walks from a distance. And he's scared. Fear begins to creep in. The unknown. John, however, stays close to Jesus. How did John get inside the building? How did John get so close? In this portion of scripture, we read that, that the high priest knew John. Knew this disciple. I don't know if you guys remember, if we go back in the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus calls his disciples, he tells us who John's dad was. John, the son of Zebedee. Zebedee was a well-known fisherman in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, when I say well-known, he was, he was probably one of the top fishermen. He had a whole fleet of ships. Most of the fishermen that day, it was like a small little family business. They had like one boat, and the whole family would fish on the one boat. But not Zebedee. He had a fleet of ships. He had people outside the family working for him. He had a whole business going on here. John came up from a very good, well-to-do background. John grew up more than likely working for his dad. They would catch all these fish in the Sea of Galilee, and they had to get. It was difficult for them to get fresh fish 
to Jerusalem. So what they do is they begin to salt these fish. It became a delicacy. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, or supposedly, there's an old coffee shop. And underneath this old coffee shop are some arches. And they claim that that was a spot where Zebedee would sell his salted fish to the high priest. And so more than likely, a young John would bring the salted fish to Jerusalem and sell to the high priest who would have been Annas. And so John knew the high priest. The high priest lets him in. And John remains close to Jesus. So we have three groups this morning for us to consider. And they all claim to be religious. You have the Sanhedrin. You have Peter. And you have John. Sanhedrin. The religious group that ruled. And then two disciples who followed Jesus. All three of these are wildly different. What is so ironic to me in this story is the Sanhedrin would have been the pillars of the community. These these would have been like the deacons in the church. What blows my mind is this. Jesus wasn't arrested by the sinners. He was arrested by those who claimed to follow God. By the religious leaders. How? How does it happen? How does it happen that that people who who supposedly have given up their life to follow and serve this God are the ones who will arrest and ultimately kill the one they're claiming to want to serve? How does that happen? It's because they were blinded. They were blinded by the power they had achieved. They were blinded by the resources that they were able to gain the money and the prestige. And all of a sudden, somebody began to mess that up. And it threatened their livelihood. Scripture doesn't tell us this at all. But I have a hard time believing that as this trial was going on, that there weren't some that began to kind of question what was going on. We do know of one. We do know of one person in the Sanhedrin when it came down to the final judgment of Pilate who stood up and objected. That's Joseph of Arimathea. But other than that, we don't know. Now, I have a hard time believing it was a unanimous, everyone's all on board. But there certainly were some in their seats that were like a little probably uncomfortable with what's going on. Today, um, We can learn a lesson in this situation. When, when things are going on that are wrong. And we're involved. We're there. We have the option of sitting and remaining silent. Or we can speak up. 
Now, taking a stand isn't always easy, is it? I mean, even, even, even in a small group, taking a stand isn't easy, much less a large group. Um, I, I, I would encourage you, this is a, a, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Adam Hamilton. He's written several books. I think I like him because all of his books are small. So I feel like I can read a lot, and it doesn't take a whole lot of time. He, he's, he's written several books on different topics from um, last year when we did our Christmas series, that journey, through, journey to Bethlehem. We used a lot of his material. He's written like two or three books in relation to Easter or the uh, that final week of, of Jesus' life. This one right here is called 24 Hours That Changed the World. It's a great, great book to read and offers a lot of perspective. But he uses this example. Um, he does this story in here about an individual by the name of Martin uh, Nymoller, a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany. And I'm going to just kind of read this little passage here to you. It says, um, during the World War II, I uh, saw sins being committed against the Jews, Jewish people, and at first decided not to object, only later to begin to speak out against them, to speak out against what he had seen. Um, words attributed to Nymoller movingly expressed his analysis of the situation. This is what he says. First, they came for the communists, but I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak up anymore. Isn't that a chilling thought? I mean, standing up for what's right isn't easy, is it? I don't, I don't know everyone's church experience. We're a young church. We're a year old. Um, we haven't had enough time to get in trouble. But I'm sure there'll be a day where we do. We'll have our challenges that we have to work through. One of the things that I've experienced probably in the last two to three years of my life, conversations I've had with people, is, is Tallahassee is full of people who have been hurt by church. I mean, all, I mean in all different ways. Some of it may be right, some of it may be wrong. I, 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 but, but church can be one of those places that we go to and we can get hurt. And things can happen. Maybe a group of people take control of the situation and we get our toes stepped on. Maybe, whatever, a pastor does some, something dumb. Y'all get used to that, okay? <laughs> but things happen in church, right? And, and, and we can get hurt. Maybe you've been in that position where you see something that you think is wrong going on. But we think, well, it's church, though. I can't stand up here. It's church. But that's the same thing that happens here in Jesus' day. These are the church leaders that have arrested and found Jesus guilty. And not just a little swat, a little spanking that they're going to give Jesus. The conviction they want to give Jesus is death. That's the church. And certainly in that group of the Sanhedrin, there were some in there that, that were a little uneasy with that. But they weren't willing to take a stand. They weren't willing to stand up 
Peter, disciple, outspoken, strong, a, a man who would help turn the world upside down. We often pick on Peter. But of all the disciples, he's probably the one most relatable to, isn't he? Because we see his faults. And most of us know our faults. Peter allowed himself to drift back. Put distance between him and Jesus. He was a follower, guys. Listen, when I say he gave up everything, he gave up everything to follow Jesus. Let's not shorten, let's not cheapen what he did. He gave up and he followed Jesus for three and a half years. But when time got tough here, he began to ease away. When that distance between him and Jesus occurred, he fell. It was then that he betrayed Jesus. That man who said, I will never do this, Jesus. But when he drifted away, when he distanced himself, he did. What a lesson for us. Who've given up our lives. Who, who are willing to follow Jesus. We have to understand, it is a continual thing. We must follow him every single day. Every single day. We cannot allow that time to come in where we creep away. Because the moment we do, we get ready to fall. We have to. Guys, our faith should not be built around a Sunday morning experience and maybe a Wednesday night experience. If that's it, we'll be spiritually shallow our entire life. I heard a guy this week talking about cell phones. In relation to this passage, he said, listen, if we only plugged our cell phones in on Sunday and Wednesday, how well would they work? Probably not very good. I, I, my, I have to plug my phone in every day. Wouldn't have much value, would it? What about our own spiritual lives? How often are we plugging in to Jesus? How, how often are we reading his word? I mean, sitting down. I, I know life is busy. And there's so much going on. I mean, one of the things I, when I was joking about earlier about um, our experienced kids that came and helped us build the stage this week, I overheard them talking about how busy life is, talking about their children and their grandchildren. Folks, we live busy lives. All of us do. All of us live busy lives. But is that an excuse for us not to plug in to Jesus? Not to spend time with him, reading his word, praying with him, singing praises to him, meditating on him. See, the, the, what ends up happening is when we disconnect ourselves, then we begin to fall. Then we do exactly what Peter did. We you know what's so amazing about this and what I love about the gospel of John is John always inserts these little tokens for us. And when John is referring to this story, explain this story in, in, in John chapter 18 about Peter. He makes a special note to say that Peter was standing next to a charcoal fire. Most of what we read that, like, what's, okay, it's a fire, charcoal, what, what's the big deal? What's the big whoop? 
You guys understand, the next time we read about a charcoal fire, it involves Jesus and Peter. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Because this is after Jesus dies and comes back to life. It's in John chapter 21. And Jesus and Peter are having this conversation. And Jesus, and John describes it around a charcoal fire. And Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. The one who betrayed him three times, and I don't think it was by fault that Jesus asked him three times. He was letting Peter know that, listen, I love you, and I have forgiven you, and I'm going to use you. How awesome is that, guys? That even though Peter got away, even though he, he stepped back and there was distance in his life, and he would fall and he would betray Jesus in an hour of darkness, Jesus never gave up on him. He loved him. After his resurrection, he goes and finds him. How awesome is that? And then that moment around a charcoal fire when he says, And then we have John. Yes, John, when, when Jesus was arrested, they all run. But John finds his way back to Jesus. And he comes inside. Inside that courtyard. He is there. He's the eyewitness to these accounts. He stays close to Jesus. When we read about the crucifixion of Christ, we know that John is the only disciple at the foot of the cross. John remained faithful. Folks, I believe that we fit into one of those three camps. Some of us um, maybe have been playing church for our whole life. We know the things to say. Those religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they knew every... Guys, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. They knew religion. They missed the Savior. Religion without Jesus is worthless. They were so consumed with everything else. They were consumed with the money. They were consumed with their jobs, their identities, everything else. But they missed Jesus. They were in church, they were memorizing their scriptures. They were doing all the things they were supposed to do, but they missed Jesus. Jesus is calling. He's called us all to do something. How do we respond to that? The Christian walk was never meant to be easy. It's challenging. There'll be times when we fall on our face, but he'll always be there. What camp do we fit into? The ones who play religion but reject the Savior? The one who follows Jesus but allows distance in the relationship? Or John, the, ba- or John, the Apostle John, who got there and stayed with Jesus and remained faithful to the end?
Let's pray.